Hey, everybody. Just a quick note on the episode coming up that the guest I interviewed was over FaceTime, and there was a couple moments where the internet connection was kind of spotty. So you'll hear a couple uh, breaks uh, as he's talking from time to time, but it's still pretty clear to hear everything he's trying to communicate. It's not a problem with the content, but just to let you know uh, so it doesn't frustrate you too bad as you listen through it. And you guys, you will really want to listen through it. This is an amazing conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. Welcome, everybody, to Church in the Wild. We're back for another conversation around this really critical idea of anxiety in our world and in our own lives. And I'm continuing this conversation today with Dr. Greg Mitchell. He's a good friend of mine and a pastor up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, he's someone that I have learned a lot from in the area of just anxiety and relationships and how it all fits and works together. And so this is, I'm hoping, going to be a really helpful conversation for you all to understand some of the symptoms of what anxiety looks like in our lives to help us be better aware of it. So anyway, Greg, how are we doing? It's great to talk to you this morning. Yeah, this is going to be, well, when you're talking about anxiety, is it okay to say that it's fun? Yeah. <laughs> Um, it depends how masochistic you are, I suppose. But, uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure that it's super fun. Well, we'll we'll see what we can do with it then. Um, yeah, as long as you're talking about other people's anxiety, then it's super fun. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can be amusing for us, can't? Yeah, I, guess so. I guess so. Um, well, let's start, Greg, um, about just, this is a little bit of a review. I've already done a couple episodes on just defining what anxiety is, because as you and I both well know, it is such a junk drawer term that gets used for such a variety of things. And I've tried to define it within the framework of systems thinking and Bowen theory, family systems, and trying to just frame it in terms of, uh, that perspective. Um, and so with that in mind, how would you take a stab at defining anxiety? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to, uh, to kind of relate anxiety to reality. And it seems as though reality kind of, usually it just kind of hums along in the background and we don't really notice. Mm -hmm. And then uh, every once in a while, and now with COVID-19 and the like, but every once in a while, it kind of uh, demands our attention. And so it's almost like a parent who says, you know, look at me, I'm talking to you, you know? Right. And so uh, reality kind of comes into the foreground now and then, and it demands that we have a response to it. And then out of that, out of that demand, we have uh, emotional feelings about that. We feel angry that we've been disrupted and that we were, just having a fine old time and why did it come along and, and disrupt us and demand our attention or we try to ignore it or we have certain kind of automatic responses that we aren't really controlling that uh, that are in reaction to reality. But then underneath those um, those initial automatic reactions, there's this thing that you're talking about called anxiety. And anxiety is the underlying emotion that's driving those other feelings. Right. Think of it in terms of, of multiple layers and that when we talk about anxiety, we're actually kind of talking about something that feels just a few steps removed from reality, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I think that what 
what if we can then define anxiety i would call it uh it's it's what it well the, the classic phrase that i use is anxiety is what it feels like to mistrust god but if we take it in the in the framework of reality there seems to be some moments of reality that kind of blind us to the reality of god and so it's just hard to see him in those moments right. there's just so much kind of noise going on in our head and in our just our circumstances that it becomes hard to see him so anxiety is this feeling that we have when we can no longer see God in our reality. Right, yeah, I've, we've talked about this in, in a couple of the earlier episodes, and this is really helpful to hit on, but, but on the neurological level, what that general anxiety does is it pushes you down into your lower brain, and that literally mm-hmm. narrows your field of thought, your field of vision, your field of being able mm-hmm. to take in information. And so mm-hmm. part of what's happening, even on a spiritual level, you might say, is you lose sight of God. You're only able to see the thing that is upsetting yeah. you or worrying you or that you're afraid of. And, yeah. and so anxiety becomes that thing of when you're mistrusting God, unable to see God in a moment, or maybe as you're looking out into the future and you're unable to envision a future uh, where God is present or where God is able to save you from from wherever you're at now yeah it's what's tricky about anxiety is that uh you're kind of narrowing of our scope where we we aren't thinking um but but what's what's interesting about it is that anxiety feels like reality it's not it, it feels like this is the only way to view this moment anxiety has this way of even though we're looking at life through a knothole, it feels like it's all encompassing and it's all that's going on and it's what reality really is. And so it's really hard to separate what reality really is kind of objectively and then our experience of reality. And we often kind of synthesize the two and say that, that my, my reactions, my perspective right now is what reality is. And that's what really makes it difficult to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Um, but probably one of the first steps towards actually being able to deal with deal with it is at least recognize when it's present. And like you're saying, there's right. certain circumstances that come up in life, and certainly this virus situation, but all kinds of things could come up in your personal life or family life, challenges, adversity, stresses, uh, unexpected bumps in the road that don't necessarily create the anxiety uh, as much as it can expose the anxiety that's already been there. It just hasn't yeah. had a need to come to the surface. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's really well said. It, um, and it's kind of ironic because these moments of reality that demand our attention uh, feel as though they're some kind of foreign object that's making us feel a particular way. But I think you're absolutely right that anxiety was going on all along. We were just we just had our coping mechanisms well in place, right. and so didn't really recognize its existence. But when these moments come along that kind of uh, bring what's going on inside of us to the surface, uh, it's easy to think that it's the issues that are causing the. We just really weren't paying attention to it. Right. Right. Um... Yeah, I, I think that's really important to understand that so many of the times when we feel anxious um, and we just immediately connect that to a circumstance, 
there's actually been just an underlying anxiety that we've just been managing to cope with in our lives, you know, by, you know, mm -hmm. the kids, we're keeping the volume of the kids lower. Um, but as soon as they erupt and start fighting and you kind of burst out and have a, you know, a big emotional reaction to it, it's exposing mm -hmm. that maybe there was more going on before that moment. And it wasn't just that moment alone because you can feel yourself almost disproportionately reacting to it, mm -hmm. which, which kind of leads us into where I want to go next, Greg. And I think this will hopefully, I don't know if it's going to encourage people, but it will at least help people be more aware of what anxiety looks like in us and some of just the common symptoms in both individuals and families, <laughs> communities, countries that you could scale it up to any level you want or scale it back all the way back down to the individual. But what some of these, yeah. um, what some of these symptoms look like to at least be able to diagnose that's what's going on in our life. And then obviously we'll need to have more conversations um, about, okay, well, the, what do we do then once we can see that's what's clearly mm -hmm. is going on? So one of the, mm -hmm. one of the first things that uh, I want to talk about in terms of symptoms of anxiety is, uh, and you've helped me to understand this really well, but it's the idea of over-functioning and under-functioning. Can you help us understand what that means? Sure, sure. There, uh, anxiety seems to send us in what looks like two opposite directions. Um, and it's, it's kind of what makes it hard to identify because it can look like two very different kinds of things. And, but what, what both of these directions have in common is they're both forms of control. Mm. So anxiety is rooted in this idea of mistrusting God. And so if, if God isn't going to be God in this, so the way that uh, humanity typically tries to take control is in one or both of these ways. One is to underfunction. So it's just uh, reality looks so overwhelming, it kind of paralyzes us. It makes us say, I don't, I, there's just so, there's just such a, a sensory overload. I have no idea what to do in this moment. And we're kind of like a deer in the headlights, unable to do much of anything. And so this might feel like despair or confusion, um, but it's, a, it's an under-functioning stance where we don't feel able to find some kind of strength or ability to be able to cope with the situation. And then on the other side, the over-functioning side, it looks like we ramp up. And so we become more heightened. And this will look like anger and uh, bullying. And so we find that depending on our personality and what's, uh, what's triggering us, we can go in one of these two opposite directions. I was just talking with my daughter um, just the other day, and she works at Starbucks. And they have a new, uh, a new system now where you're not allowed to drink your coffee inside of the uh, instead of the Starbucks, they just take your order and then you have to leave again. It's all about social distancing and these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so this guy uh, orders his coffee and then starts cussing out my daughter because he's so angry that he can't have his coffee sitting in a chair in Starbucks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, first world problem kind of thing. But it's like, that, that's, that's over-functioning. It's, it's an overreaction to the reality that he's facing. And he doesn't know, but that's actually a form of anxiety. Right. Right. I think that there's all kinds of so, different ways. So that you have, you have these two things. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was just going to say that uh, 
there's all kinds of different ways that people react to their anxiety. And, and oftentimes we can swing back and forth between the two in our life. Usually we have a yeah. home base that's kind of our favorite go-to spot. Um, yeah. But it's easy to go back and forth. Uh, I know a lot of the times in parenting this comes up because uh, when when I'm in an anxious place or my wife's in an anxious place, we can tend to want to underfunction, just kind of let the kids go and do what they're going to do, whether we want to go take a nap or just want to just retreat into our own like safe space, whatever that looks like for us. And you do that just so long as chaos erupts, and then you completely blurt out and you know anger towards them. Then you start laying down tens or 20, 30 different rules that they're supposed to follow in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you start micromanaging, controlling who they can talk to, when they can say it, where they can be, where they can go, what they got to do. And, uh, and so you just go from like, okay, micromanaging yeah. control to complete releasing of all control. And, sw- and that swing back and forth is just all kind of driven by that underlying emotional state that we're in. Um, yeah. 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 I think that, I think you're saying something uh, really important that where, you know, whether we choose to over or under function in that moment is often in reaction to the people around us. Right. And so the idea is, is that if, if our, if our kids are, are in a heightened state and they, it looks all chaotic, then we're going to, in reaction to them, we're either going to have them try to chill out, you know, and, and so we're going to try to, have them kind of uh, go to a, a lower state of, uh, you know, of activity, or we're going to try to trump them and go even stronger than them in order to control them. But it really is reactivity, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, it is. we're ricocheting off the people around us and responding to them out of our anxiety. Yeah, yep. And even for those of you non-parents out there, obviously, I'm I'm pretty sure it's it's relatively easy to imagine what this might look like in your life, whether you've got high perfectionistic tendencies and tend towards the micromanaging or the finer details control. Some of that's redemptive and personality driven and maybe even part of your strengths and skill sets. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it can it can be driven by uh, this anxious thing. And especially when it's really starting to grind you down and wear you out and cause you to notice how you might be um, unhealthily reacting to the people and situations going on around you, it might be more of an anxious overfunctioning than it is just a diligent planner sort of a thing going on. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And likewise, just people who are uh, apathetic, uh, put off all their deadlines to the last minute, um, people who uh, don't really take you know situations very seriously in their life, or um, this this can all just be this reaction of just maybe feeling overwhelmed. Uh, uh, and this is just a way of trying to cope with hoping that maybe someone else will step in and maybe overfunction for you on your behalf. Um, but uh, and there's always plenty of people in the world. It's interesting, isn't it? That yeah. that's as much about anxiety, right? As the as the first one, where yes. I'm more of the underfunctioner, and so I look at people overfunctioning. And I go, wow, they have an anxiety problem. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> they should work on that. You know, <laughs> yes, totally. and uh, be as be as chill and underfunctioning as I am. Yes, you know, totally. And, and if we were all self-aware, yes. And if we were all just the chill underfunctioners, the world would fall yeah. apart oh so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's really hard to sometimes identify uh, the one that we're operating in yes. because we're so busy focused on what the other people are doing. We're unaware that we're actually just as reactive as they are, but um, it's just hard to be self-aware. Right. This is going to lead me into the next one I want to talk about, Greg. Really nicely is when. Uh, we actually start making more you statements that assume the motivation of others, 
versus mm-hmm. making I statements that just simply define ourself. So when we're in relationship, just like you're describing as an under or over functioner, yeah, really... <laughs> we start labeling people as lazy or as a control freak and assuming kind of motivations versus really examining our own hearts and anxiety. Yeah, and I think that that gets to what the heart of anxiety is, is that it's a self-centered orientation. Mm -hmm. So because I can't trust God, I can only trust in myself. And therefore, I begin to interpret myself and the world around me through a self-centered grid. So they actually aren't an individual in their own right. They're only how I perceive them is only what I feel about them. Mm -hmm. And it's almost a dehumanizing uh, orientation where who you are is simply what I feel about you and how you're affecting me in this moment. And so we kind of reduce people to, to caricatures that, um, that kind of make it simple enough for our anxiety to control them. So you're just out of control right now, or uh, you're irresponsible. And we kind of reduce people to these simplistic descriptions of who they are in the hope that if we can make life simpler, that's somehow going to reduce our anxiety. Sure. And uh, uh, it's just fascinating. Of course, it, it never really works because people are always more complex than how, what we reduce them to. But it's nevertheless where we go. Right. It's, it's, um, you can see this tendency right now. I mean, we're obviously in the midst of a, a political you know, election season as well. And so it's uh-huh. it's really all about how can you reduce someone else down to a simple category and box that assumes some ill motive on their on their mm-hmm. part for why they are the way that they are or why they do the things that they do. And um, I don't want to just pull this up in the political stratosphere because I think that can trigger all kinds of anxiety when we start to think through this. But if you would just consider this on a personal level, we... Anytime we're trying to make assumptions about not just what people are doing, but what's motivating why they're doing it, that's where things become actually quite dangerous. And even Jesus Mm -hmm. in his command not Mm -hmm. to judge, I think that has far more to do with what he's saying, that you can't see the heart, only God can. You can observe what they're doing and call that out all day long, but you can't necessarily assume where that's coming from, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. what they necessarily intended by it. That doesn't mean you let, you know, if someone says something rude as an example, you don't necessarily have to let it slide or not call it out. But to assume that um, to assume that they hate you or to assume some level of bigotry or to assume um, just, you know, wh- whatever your label you want to slap onto them might be in that moment, you're right. It's just a way of managing our anxiety by reducing them down to a simple category that we can make an enemy mm-hmm. and dismiss or demonize. And all of it is is alleviating us from from dealing with maybe the internal emotional process going on inside of ourself. Yeah, yeah, it's really true. As a as a Canadian, it's really fun to watch you guys across the border work all this out. <laughs> oh, we're just here for your amusement. That's all. That's all we exist. Interesting for. to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what you're there for. Um, what What's interesting is that we not only demonize people, but we also exalt people. Uh, right. Also out of anxiety. That's true. So too. sometimes we think that anxiety only leads us toward being suspicious of people, but sometimes it actually leads us towards having an overinflated view of someone's goodness and where we actually excuse people's behaviors and, oh, they really didn't mean it that way. Exactly. Because our anxiety doesn't let them have a problem because we wouldn't know what to do with that. Right. So we kind of need to smooth it all over and make it all fine. And 
And it, it's interesting that positivity can actually be as anxious a response as negativity can be. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I think, well, for a lot of people, they get tired of the political process because there's they just want people to be honest. Like if you're just going to pick a team mm. and cheer for them regardless of what they say or do, um, mm. it just feels so disingenuous. And I think they're, inside of us, we all long for like, hey, pick your team, find whatever, but at least be honest about the good and bad things they do or say, right? Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I think for, I'm just going to speak as a pastor because that's my realm and your realm. And I see this all the mm -hmm. time. For sure, I see the kind of watchdog, hypercritical people of kind of church leadership and, and so forth. And they, they assume I'm just after money or I'm just after power or control. And so they kind of label me that. But there's lots more people in church that want to exalt their pastor as if he is the second coming of Jesus Jr., you know? Mm -hmm. and, um, and it just builds up in their mind this whole category of a human that isn't flawed, um, that doesn't make mistakes, that doesn't have imperfect thoughts. And, uh, and you can actually uh, subtly displace your trust of Jesus onto your pastor or leader um, yeah. in a way that's just as unhealthy as being that kind of hyper curmudgeon -y sort of critical person. Yeah, better, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. I like it if everybody thinks I'm amazing. <laughs> sure. So they get to know me, of course. But uh, but you're absolutely right. It can it can send us in, in one of these two directions, and neither of them are helpful. And what's what's interesting to note is that it's uh, it is anxiety, meaning I need it. It, it kind of leaves reality behind. And it says, I need you to be something for me mm -hmm. because I know that I can't be something for myself. And so we, we offload our anxiety onto somebody else, expecting them to be kind of a savior figure when we're just setting themselves up and us up for disappointment because there's no way that they can ever fulfill those kinds of roles. Right. But when we know that what's really going on is our anxiety, we go, oh, this is, uh, this is misplaced faith. Right. This is putting my faith in something or someone that isn't qualified for the job. And so what's so great, the difficulties that the world's experiencing right now, which is, of course, great tragedy, uh, there can be redemption in this because what it does is it brings to the surface these unqualified saviors in our hearts and reveals them. And we go, oh, so the reason why I'm anxious is that I'm trusting in something or someone that isn't able to give me the peace in my heart that I long for. And so instead of just managing the symptoms of anxiety that I should try to just, I don't know, meditate more and feel more peaceful and or whatever it is, or hoard more things or wh whatever our anxious responses go, oh, okay, this is revealing something that was true about me all along, that I am struggling to know how to find and trust Jesus in these kinds of places. And so anxiety in some strange way can almost be a gift to us. We're going on in our heart to choose a better savior. Yeah, well, I really love that idea. I really love that idea that sometimes you want to assume that anxiety is our greatest enemy, and for sure it can cause all kinds of toxic and terrible mm -hmm. things in our life. But mm -hmm. when you become aware of it and pay attention to it, it's really just mm -hmm. intended to shed a light on, on the yeah. real things that you are trusting in, alternatively mm -hmm. to God. And if you could see those things and turn from them, I know that for myself, of course, one of the first reactions you have when you have to shut down a church service as a pastor is you think, well, shoot, when you can't gather, um, are people going to want to come back to church when this is all done? 
And yeah. And so, yeah, one of the first things I began to think about is like, what what kind of a church am I going to have if this is going to take four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it might end up being. And mm-hmm. my first reaction to that, Greg, and um, I'm not trying to call out anyone specifically, so please don't hear this as me thinking of you um, who might be listening, but my first reaction was, well, I better work very hard to create a ton of content, you know? Um, I'm going to do like two podcasts a day and daily devotionals, and I'm going to like put as much stuff out into the Ethernet ether as possible. And it was me not just trying to bless or help or serve my people through this crisis. It was me trying to grab hold of my people to make sure they'd come back when it was over. Um, And I, that was, it was very immediate for me. And I think in the wake of this, you're seeing a flood of people doing similar things. And I'm not judging why someone might be doing that, only pointing out that it's worthy of uh, consideration that, you know, the problem before this crisis was not a lack of content or our access to it. And so um, I think we should be weary as pastors in the ways we might be just over-functioning in this moment out of fear and anxiety versus really stopping to ask, Jesus, okay, where are you in this moment? What are you wanting to do in this moment? And how do I simply just participate and partner with that? And uh, boy, that is a that is a That's very so good. It, freeing it, thing. I mean, when I hear when I hear you talk, it it sounds um, anxiety is just very hard to identify. It's super. It really it, is. It, 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 it's much easier to to divide the world into good and bad behaviors. Yes, and that if you do this then for sure that's anxiety. And if you do this, oh, that's never anxiety. But what you're describing, just as we can look at people positively and that can be anxiety, even our uh, noble work can actually have a very unhealthy motivation behind it. Right. And so it really, uh, anxiety kind of demands that we slow down our hearts enough to ask deeper questions about our motivation and not just uh, happily assume that yeah, I'm generating more content for my congregation, so that must mean that I'm loving them, is, well, really, well, let's talk about that, you know, and and where exactly is that coming from? Those kinds of questions are super and can be very life-giving, but we have to to create the space in order to think and pray at that level. Yeah, yeah, totally. Greg, there's just a a couple more things I want to touch on here. Uh, I'm saving one of my favorite things that you talk about for last, but uh, you and I both love Edwin Friedman and his book, Failure of Nerve, and I mentioned it already on this mm-hmm. podcast. is a great read for anyone that's wanting to dive deeper yeah. on this topic or learn more about it. Um, not the easiest read to get through, but man, if, nope. if you will really invest yourself into it, it'll, it'll pay off a lot more than you'll realize. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that he talks about uh, with anxiety is how it can be infectious, that anxiety yeah. can spread, and it's not just an in- individualistic thing. It can actually go spread into whole systems of relationships, including entire countries or a global sort of economy, which we're in now. And he mm-hmm. talked about that one of, uh, along with everything else that we are describing so far in this podcast, he also talked about one of the symptoms being that when systems are really anxious, um, when the world or our country or our communities or our families are really anxious, that they tend to adapt and accommodate to the least mature members of that system. That uh, instead of rallying around um, wisdom or strength or creativity, um, they tend to just kind of make room for the most afraid to kind of walk on eggshells around them, for the most easily offended. They tend to just kind of um, like reorient all of their speech and words around them 
And, uh, and so then we all end up becoming extra anxious as we just simply kind of fall down lower and lower to who is at the bottom of the anxiety, you know, chain. And we all kind of rally around that place. Um, is there anything that you can say to that or comment on that of, of what that feels like or looks like? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is a child-centered home <clears throat> that we feel as though for a good parent, really loving parents are kind of, you know, we term helicopter parents where they're just hovering around their children and making everything fine and being the, the ultimate parent, driving them to every event and making life revolve around them. And, and that's actually um, a form of anxiety where we have the child who becomes the most demanding. And then we assume that as the leader of the home, our job is to reduce their anxiety by overfunctioning and being all things for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, these things are so sneaky, aren't they? Because it, it looks like we're being a good parent, but actually right. we're just feeding into the anxiety of the child. Right. And then, and then what we find, of course, in our society right now is we have people who in the midst of this virus are, are in panic mode. And so in a sense, it's almost like um, there's something in our soul that demands that we respond to that. And now we all need to go out and buy more toilet paper. We all, like, we're just living in reaction to the lowest common denominator of society. And it's just so hard to kind of extricate ourselves from that loop of, uh, of, of pandering to or reacting off of the lowest common denominator in a home or in a church or in a society and being able to step back from that moment and say, Father, what are you doing? How can I be responsive to you instead of reactive to the, to the one with the loudest voice or, the, uh, or what appears to be the greatest need? And it takes, I think, tremendous... Um, uh, uh, I, I, kind of rest in Christ mm-hmm. uh, to be able to, to not uh, just quickly engage, but to kind of put moments into slow motion and say about that person who's, uh, who's demanding a response and asking ourselves uh, who would best be Lord of this moment. Right. Yes. <laughs> is it the person with the loudest voice? You know, is, are, are they really to be the best person in control of this moment and to kind of slow it down and say, no, there's, there must be a better Lord that I would submit to in this moment than the one who's screaming for my attention and that demands all of their needs be met. And as we can, as we can put that moment into slow motion, we're, we are able to create space to think and pray and then be responsive to our Father. Yeah. Well, boy, that's really well said. I think of a story in, in uh, Edwin Friedman's book. It's, it's my favorite story out of the book, and I could relate it to several stories in my own life. But he was hosting a seminar, and there was a lady in the seminar that took great offense at one of his illustrations he was, she was using. It had nothing to do with the point of the illustration, just some of the circumstances of it. And so mm-hmm. she stood up and challenged him. And instead of having a conversation about, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend, I, I apologize for this, he, he simply just said, this is my illustration, it's from my perspective, and it's my best attempt, essentially, to explain the concept I'm trying to explain, and I'm not going to allow you to take over my seminar um, because you can't control your own emotional reactivity wow. right now. And uh, it, yeah. it, like you read this story, and it looks like he's almost being unkind or mean to the woman, but in a room of yeah. hundreds of people, 
he was actually making sure that he and the room didn't now bow down to her as the one that gets to set yeah. the agenda of what he's allowed to say and not say, what he's allowed to speak yeah. and not speak, uh, because she was not even able to hear what he was saying just based on her level of anxiety in that moment. Um, and so I think there's a lot of moments like that. Even even Jesus had a lot of moments like that where um, he wasn't just going to placate all the concerns of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, um, that he was going to say what he had to say, even, even if he knew it would confuse the people he was saying it to, um, because he wasn't just going to simply spend all of his time uh, working with people that may not even be motivated to even understand him in the first place, um, but was going to continue to move forward while inviting everyone along, along to move with him, um, which is a really beautiful paradigm of leadership for me. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And, and what that makes me think of is, you know, how do you get there? And it takes a person who's practiced being non-reactive in maybe less volatile moments so that when those bigger moments come along, they know what to do with them. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of think of, of life like, well, when it comes along, I'll deal with it. But uh, actually, we won't deal with it. If we don't have a practice of knowing how to find Jesus in moments, then when those bigger moments come along, we'll be entirely overwhelmed by them. And so whether it's Friedman or better yet, Jesus, yeah, right. that was, a, that was a, a lifestyle of, uh, of learning how to be responsive to something better than the loudest voice in our ear. Yeah. And it just really inspires me to say in, 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 the, in the times of reality when it just feels like everything is humming along quite nicely, to actually be aware in those moments and how am I reacting to those moments so that when the bigger moments come along, I already have a pattern of knowing how to find Jesus in those places. Yeah. Greg, I'm curious how you work out the tension of, for sure, within the kingdom of God, there's a call to care for the least of these. There's a call to care for those who are anxious and who who do are gripped with a lot of fear and do have legitimate things that are, you know, that, that would make people really anxious, mm-hmm. while ourselves um, not becoming anxious along with them, but yet still, you know, still helping them in that place. So obviously we don't just to adapt to the least mature member of the family becoming a child center home or the least mature member of our society. And then we just let them dictate the terms of every discussion we're in. Um, but you also don't just want to be calloused and just dismiss people, you know, at the same time. So how, how do you, how do you describe walking through that tension? Yeah. Yeah. This is the challenge of empathy, isn't it? that we don't want to uh, be cold-hearted people and just go, wow, you have an issue, you should get over that. Right. But we also don't want to be overrun by their anxiety and, um, and just pander to what their anxiety demands instead of what's really best for them. And for me, what I think about, what, what helps me a lot is to really think about the idea of love, that uh, what I'm wanting to be in that moment is most loving. So... The goal isn't for me just to be managing my anxiety in that moment. That's not actually the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to love God and love others in that moment. Right. And so if all I'm doing is thinking about anxiety management, I'm still quite self-focused, aren't I? Yeah, that's true. And, and that the real um, exhibition of faith is, is not that I've managed to be peaceful. It's that I've managed to be loving and engaged 
and done what is actually best for that person and not just best for me and not just what they demand. And so that to me is becomes the, uh, the metric that I'm, you know, evaluating the moment in is father, how can I stay most loving in this moment? Not how can I stay self-protected? Not how can I quiet them down? But what's the most loving thing to do in this moment? And so that's what the gift of faith gives us. As we trust in Jesus, we're able to slow down our hearts enough to actually think about what's most loving. And so uh, even though you can imagine, of course, a child doesn't think that them being disciplined is most loving right. or, or, you know, the, you know, hearing no, they don't think that's very loving. But we actually, as we walk in faith, we can do what's ultimately most loving. Well, the other person doesn't appreciate it much in the moment. And that really is the challenge of leadership, isn't it? Yeah, it Whether is. it's government or church leadership or family leadership or just leading in a social circle, to be able to do what we believe is most loving, man, that's where the redemption of God is found. And that's where new life can begin. Yeah, that's really, really amazing. Greg, you do such a good job at, um, at describing that paradigm and connecting it back to what the, the real purpose is meant to be, which I would fully agree with you. Is it really about loving God and others? How anxiety can point us back into self, but even just the managing of anxiety can become its own anxiety, but, uh, That's right. but really getting outside of that to love others. Greg, here's the final thing I want to talk about. Uh, and it's, it's one of the, I would say, the more fun and amusing, for sure, aspects of, of our symptoms of anxiety. But one of the ways you can tell a very anxious family or a very anxious church or just a very anxious society is when there's a lack of sense of humor, when there is no yeah. laughing and laughter, that a non-anxious presence is able to laugh at a whole wide range of things. The whole phrase of like, someday we'll look back at this and laugh, that depending on your anxiety level, that day can be very quick. That could be, that could be like two minutes from now, two days from now, two years from now, uh, based on how you can be in that moment. Now, it's clearly there's things that are not funny, um, but being able to laugh is a sign that you are operating more out of your just reactive instincts in your lower brain and that you're able to imagine, you know, imagine and kind of think creatively about a situation. And humor is the, is, can be the byproduct of that sometimes, Greg. Uh, any, any thoughts that you have about uh, a sense of humor and how important it is for a non-anxious presence? Yeah, I really like that. It, it's, a, it's a really big deal. Uh, we've often said that, that you can tell um, if a church or a home or a business is anxious, it is. Mm -hmm. Everybody in that social setting is just really buckling down and nobody's smiling and nothing is ever funny. That's actually one of the most obvious signs that it's an anxious system. Yeah. And so the way then to break out of that anxiety often is just humor. And humor, I think, is just a, a huge gift from God yes. that allows us to really not take ourselves that seriously. And if we know that anxiety is all about being self-focused and self-centered and reactive off of others, then humor really is an antidote to that. Because uh, when you're making fun of yourself or when you're not taking others too seriously, then that really means that you're not giving them power. You're not, uh, you're not looking to them to define reality. You're looking to yourself to define reality. You're kind of taking yourself lightly. Um, I tell this story, and you know, you've heard me say it, but I, I remember this time when, uh, when one of my sons, I think 
he was in high school. And the joke is that he has two favorite pastimes. Uh, the one is snowboarding and the other is to uh, irritate his mother. <laughs> I can't always tell which is more enjoyable for him, <laughs> the former or the latter. But, uh, but he really enjoys both a lot. <laughs> and so, uh, so my, my wife is German and, uh, and he comes home one day from school and he says, Hey mom, I, uh, you know, I'm thinking of getting a swastika tattooed on my cheek, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like he just presses the go button, you know, and, uh, and then here we go. And I can't believe that you'd ever want to do that. And not all Germans are Nazis and <laughs> we're pastors getting on and on it goes, you know, and they're having this, um, uh, this, well, we'll call it a conversation. <laughs> heated conversation. And, uh, Intense yeah, one. heated conversation. <laughs> And then he would say, well, it would only be small, you know. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a like, small swastika. What's the yeah, big deal? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the joke is, but I took my course, so I know what to do, you know. So, uh, yeah, sure. so I, say, I say to my son, I say, hey, uh, why don't you get a swastika tattooed on all four cheeks? And then he, uh, he thinks this is funny. And he laughs and then walks away and goes on with the rest of his day. That there was, there was the power in making a joke that just diffused the anxiety, and uh, often I think that, you know, I think life is kind of funny, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, and our seriousness is just a sign that we take ourselves too seriously or others too seriously. And what a, what a joke. Now, sometimes I know that jokes are actually also anxiety, mm -hmm, where sure. people are kind of ignoring reality and being dismissive. So I get that. Or being passive but, aggressive, you know. And, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, but what it often is, is a sign that I'm refusing to be over impressed with myself for you, and I'm going to choose to find some humor in this moment. And when that happens, it, it actually shifts the atmosphere to where people kind of get snapped out of their trance, you know, of anxiety and says, yeah, what's really going on here? This is dumb. And it just allows people to have a fresh take on reality by just injecting a bit of humor into the situation. Yeah, that's really, really fun. It's, uh, it's really helpful. It's good. Um, one of our statements in, uh, in our church here in Corvallis is the church that plays together stays together. We try to make mm -hmm. joy, laughter, jokes, fun, uh, even mm -hmm. at our... Uh, church events, whether it's Sundays or servant appreciation dinner that we do, we always are trying to incorporate intentionally silly stuff. And it gets eye rolls, sometimes it gets laughs, but I think it's actually, you know, some people just think we're not taking things very seriously, but actually I'm taking our church extremely seriously yeah. to not yeah. take it too seriously. And, yeah. and uh, I make sure that I look silly, uh, I've rapped, I've danced, and I'm good at neither in front of the church. And I just want them to see that the second we we really become locked down and gridlocked by our anxiety into taking uh, one another way too seriously is is the moment that all kinds of other symptoms and problems are going to start showing up. So um, in uh, in your home, if you're a mom or dad, uh, in your in your business, obviously there's a, a ways to appropriately and inappropriately use humor. <laughs> Don't go the Michael Scott uh, way, but uh, if you can <laughs> you can figure out ways to inject humor, especially into anxious moments, to see if it can kind of break you through that 
you know, ice of anxiety into more of a creative thinking and space. Uh, it can be a really beautiful thing. Uh, Greg, I want to end there. I want to thank you so much for your time. We've got a lot more to talk about. We've just kind of helped to diagnose what anxiety can look like, but obviously we'll have to continue the conversation in terms of what it looks like to overcome it. But I really want to thank you for your thoughts, Greg. You're one of the best people I know to talk about sin and anxiety. You're just a thorough expert in both those categories. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) thank you for your help, my friend. (laughs) Take care. God bless you. All right. Thanks.